Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. In this episode, we'll be joined by Ian Stepler of Stepler Farms. He's a commercial beekeeper in Canada who has a very large presence in social media. So he's going to talk about how he uses social media to educate commercial beekeepers around the world. We'll follow that with a five-minute management on rules and regulations regarding beekeeping, how you can know what rules there are in your area and ensure that you're following them. And of course, we'll end today's podcast with the question and answer segment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. We are fortunate to be joined today by Ian Stepler of Stepler Farms. He is a commercial beekeeper in Canada, and we've looked up a lot of information about him. And, and Ian, what you do as a beekeeper is cool. And so we look forward to talking with you about you know your business, your operation, what advice you have for commercial beekeepers. So Ian, welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. Well, thanks for that, Jamie. I'm more than flattered to be here with you today. Great. And, you know, Ian, one of the things that we try to do through this podcast is we we want to make it relevant to commercial beekeepers, beekeepers, of course, around the world, but specifically commercial beekeepers, because we want to make sure that there's a way that they can get cutting edge information, new ideas. So we spend a lot of time talking to bee scientists as, as new reports or papers or projects are unfolded, but we also really love to talk to successful commercial beekeeping. And Ian, I got to admit, you know, as we, as we talked a little bit beforehand here, I've only ever lived in warm climates. I did spend six months in Germany on a sabbatical, but for the rest of my 43 years, I've been in hot climates. And to think about what you have to do to be a successful beekeeper where you are in Canada is pretty mind boggling. So as we kind of start this interview, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your operation? You know, what do you do as a commercial beekeeper in Canada? And then we'll get specifically into some of the other cool initiatives that you started specifically with your YouTube channel, et cetera. So tell us about yourself. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because you have a lot of days up here during the winter. I wonder how anything could possibly survive alone, you know, let alone honeybees. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> sometimes, you, <laughs> sometimes you wonder why we live in this country, but there are a lot of benefits too. So, you know, there's always a balance to everything. We, we go through a lot of harshness and a lot of variability, but on the flip side of that, there is a huge abundance that we're able to tap into. And that's what we pretty much focus on to build to maintain our livelihoods. Yeah. Tell us a little bit of, you know, about your farm, your, your business in general. Do you focus on pollination, honey production, yeah. queen rearing? I noticed here in your bio that you do way more than just bees, right? There's a lot of other things that you, yeah. you, you diversified into. And I, I think our listeners just want to get to know you here as, as we start this process. Yeah. So we're uh, like a third generation of farm. We've been here. We're going to have our centennial next year. So the farm's been around for about a hundred years and we're very involved with the cattle business and uh, grain farming. That's primarily the basis of our farm. I farm with my brothers, three brothers. One of them manages the cattle farm, one of them manages the uh, uh, grain farm. My other brother flies, he's a captain for Air Canada, flies the 320. And whenever he's not flying, he's back here farming. 
and of course I'm I'm the beekeeper of the farm. So it kind of we kind of work together in a uh, in a symbiotic management practice or management way, I guess you can say. So it works out pretty well. Our farm's located in Miami, Manitoba, so we're about 20 miles off the border, just above North Dakota. And we're kind of right on the prairie farmers. We have a lot of flat land. We also farm up in hills on the escarpment. So we're very diverse terrain. We're kind of on the edge of the Canadian shield in a way. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a family effort and we just do our best to, uh, to keep things moving forward. So I'm, I'm curious, Ian, when I was hearing you talk about that, you know, cattle and all these other things was keeping bees a new entry to the farm or has it been a part of the farm since there's been a farm? I mean, where, where did that jump in? Yeah, we're first generation beekeepers and I'm the one that brought the bees into the farm. Back in uh, the late nineties, I went to the university of Manitoba, took my diploma class and we were having a lot of trouble uh, keeping the farm solvent. It was a real tough bunch of years and BSE hit us and all this kind of stuff. And we were just struggling and, I was just out of high school and looking for, I wanted to continue farming. I wanted to keep doing what we were doing with the grain and the cattle farm. But as always, I was looking for something else to help. You know, I wanted to raise a family and look after family. I, I met Sandy at that time and we were looking to settle down and just looking for something else. So I went to the University of Manitoba, took a diploma course, and this beekeeping course was offered. But actually, to be honest, I kind of laughed at it. But uh, I needed two credits to pass the diploma course. So I figured, hey, I'll, I'll take this get through my diploma course and just see where this leads. And, and it was kind of funny, uh, the story kind of goes around. My buddy was in exactly the same situation. He needed two credits to pass his diploma course. And so he said, I, uh, well, I guess we'll get through this, this and we'll graduate. And, and the, the only problem was that uh, that class is offered in the evening, Wednesday evening, and that is bar night. And I told my buddy, he said, oh, that's not going to work. We can't miss part <laughs> And he said, no, no, Ian, let's think this through. He said, uh, we'll go to take this beekeeping class. And then what we'll do is we'll go to the pub after. He said, and we can't go to the pub at 7 o'clock in the evening. Anyways, that's too early. You know, we'll just go to about uh, 9 or 10 o'clock after the class ends and we'll go have our fun. So we did that, both of us. And the first couple classes in, I was hooked, just like a lot of people people are with bees they're just so fascinating and it reaches so many aspects of everybody's life and so it just kind of grabbed a hold of me and I bought four hives that summer uh, summer of 99 and 22 I think math is 22 late years later 1500 hives that I have in my winter shed right now so it's been quite the journey for me that's a crazy story it's funny how people fall into this so all into it yeah Yeah, it's it's amazing so you know I've actually visited the area you know you and I've talked about that just very quickly you know, in my mind, where you guys are is pretty cold. What is the length of your season? Are we talking four months, five? What's the beekeeping season? You know, when the bees wake up after winter and go back down for the next winter? How long is that? Yeah, so uh, up here in Manitoba, uh, right across the prairies, I guess, in Canada, we were kind of dictated by four very distinct seasons. I'm not sure how seasonal you you guys are down there, but I think you have more of a like a merger between seasons. Up here, yeah. it's like yeah. it's yeah. spring, summer, fall, and winter, and it's very defined, very distinct. And so we'll uh, put our bees away in the fall. We put them away inside my winter shed in November, and it's pretty much lights out for them right till April. So they're in confinement in that shed for five, five and a half months, which is a long time. So we get them out in April, we start managing them in the spring and we have week by week by week things progress so fast 
and we hit the honey flow middle of June. And that honey flow hopefully takes us to September, but the last bunch of years is, you know, things are kind of changing a bit and things are getting a little warmer and drier and they're late summer. So our honey flow is basically middle of June to the middle of August. And then things switch right back into a, a fall time mode, uh, which we have to get things fed up before October because then winter falls again by uh, November. So things are very, like we have a very long winter, but we ha- and we have a very short but productive summertime period. I always wondered what beekeepers did in the winter time. What do you guys do? Uh, we, it's Hang out almost... and drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I don't have such a luxury as that because we have the other aspects of the farm going. We have 650 cows uh, that we calve out on the farm. So right now, actually, we have 300 calves uh, running around now we're halfway through that so we have that to do and then i'm also the grain farm it kind of uh, keeps us busy on all other times of the year uh, through harvest uh, it, it really makes things busy and then this time of year when i'm not over helping with the cattle farm because andre manages that with his uh, hired guys and such i like to help just around the edges i like to focus on maintenance projects for the farm maintaining equipment for the grain farm or the cattle farm or uh, maintaining equipment for the honey farm itself. Right now, I'm just preparing my workload strategy for next spring, just reviewing some videos just to help put some pieces together, mixing some supplement just to help prepare um, all this feed that we need to feed the bees as come spring. So it's not as busy. Once I put the bees out in spring, it's a uh, the hammer drops on 15-hour days right until we put them back away. But, you know, I like just to take a little bit of time for myself this year, this time of year, too. Sure. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I was just kidding about you not having anything to do with your time. <laughs> well, you're, we do get a lot of flack. There, I know there's a lot of Southern beekeepers down there that seem to be on the road all the time with their migratory mm-hmm. systems. And they're going and they're going and they look at me and I have five and a half months I'm not spending on my bees. They're like, ah, what do you do with your spare time? Drink beer, just like you said. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I wasn't the first person. If it makes you feel oh, any no. better, then, <laughs> say, if it makes you feel any better, those same Southern beekeepers ask us what we do with our times. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Everything's so, relative, right? <laughs> exactly. We're always having to defend ourselves. Everything relative in conversation. Up. There yeah. you go. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, so you've been in the business, uh, you know, you've been beekeeper for 22 years or so. And I, I guess I should assume or could assume that you've had a lot of collaboration during this time. So I guess I'm interested in, you know, just who you collaborate with. Do you work with other universities or researchers? And I know that Jamie will talk to you a little bit about your YouTube channel in a bit, but, um, you know, what involvement do you have with the general public and and all of the above, I guess? Well, that's a pretty big question. Um, when I first got into the business, because I'm a first generation, I was in as a greenhorn and knew absolutely nothing I didn't even know what a swarm was. You know, I just got into it and this is it. The, the interest of the bees themselves has kind of hooked me. So I, I was in green, I was a rookie. So I reached out and we didn't have social media at that time either, but not like we do now. Like you have Facebook, we have Facebook, we have YouTube, we have all these places where we have webinars. I mean, we, we have all these places that we can reach to at a moment's notice to be able to extract the type of information that we're really interested in. I didn't have any of that. So I was kind of by myself trying to figure it out. I bug my neighbor beekeepers as much as, as they tolerate me, but I'd really hinged on associations, especially a Manitoba Beekeepers Association and bringing people in to speak to us about beekeeping, beekeeping issues and strategies, and all this, just the world of 
the honey business, right? And I remember when uh, Jamie, you come up to the Manitoba Beekeepers Association convention. I forget when that was. It was, it was a little while ago, and you brought a perspective of the southern beekeeping from a you know a scientific backed uh, basis, and it was just very enlightening and just connected me with the industry, so I could just kind of figure out some things. And then basically after that, uh, learning the business with just a school of hard knocks where, you know, you, you get ahead some years and you, they just slaps you back other years. And there's that continual progression as it goes through. I've always respected or appreciated the help that others had provided me as I was trying to get my way through as I built this beekeeping business up. And because of that, I always felt that I have to, not that I have to, but I just, I like to give some of that back also as others are going through the same thing just not to i'm not looking for answers just looking for perspective and just you know process and just ideas just conversation is what i'm looking for and that's basically the uh the whole bit of it and as uh social media kind of uh crept in and a little bit closer i i found my way onto facebook somehow and I was just exposed to this community of beekeepers who all assembled on Facebook. I was on BeeSource, there's another little forum that we all kind of gathered. And it kind of made the beekeeping world a little bit smaller. You know, we're a very, very small industry. We don't have the ability to go to the coffee shop and talk to other beekeepers like other farmers do. But we could sit down on our computer and we could reach out all across the world and talk beekeeping every morning and just, you know, talk that all those issues and such and that just brought everything together i was just expressing a lot of my ideas management practices and one thing led to another you know i stumbled into a youtube project like this which is just another huge exposure just provides a totally different medium and connects you closer to absolutely everybody around you is quite the amazing thing yeah. Ian, that's a perfect segue. When I when we were pre- prepping for interviewing you, I spent some time on your YouTube channel and I was utterly amazed at what you have put together. You know, you're self-producing these videos of different aspects of being a commercial beekeeper, different things that you're showing. And I just saw the number of views on your videos, hundreds of thousands of views, millions of views in yeah, a crazy. couple of videos case, and, you know, some of them that were just posted a year ago. So this is an important thing for me to discuss with you because just yesterday I was on another commercial beekeeper who I know well, his, he has a YouTube channel, which I didn't know he was getting hundreds of thousands of views, which tells me a couple of things. Number one, now we need to start YouTube videos. Yeah, well, it, it, no, what it, what it told me a couple of things is beekeepers get information from beekeepers. Yes. And, I, and and that's number one. Number two, people like you have such tremendous influence in the industry because you're sharing your successes, your failures, your questions, your answers through these videos. You know, in the last 24 hours, looking at that other individual site, your site, I've just been overwhelmed at what you guys are doing on behalf of the industry. So how did you start producing YouTube videos? What motivated you and what type of feedback are you receiving from it? Yeah, so there you go. Uh, I always felt that our honeybee industry, our beekeeping industry is starved of perspective. And it's the exact same thing as when I was a uh, startup beekeeper is just, I was looking for some kind of guidance to be able to provide me just that on how people do things not necessarily so I could reach in and do what they're doing, but just to help me reach into their mind 
and help me understand bees better so I could bring that back into my operation and form my own management practices. It's just that very act of providing perspective. And I've always been a big believer in that. Uh, what got me into YouTube is, is maybe just a little bit of story. It might take me five minutes to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. So as I kind of stumbled into uh, social media, onto YouTube, and I was talking to beekeepers all over the world, right across the country and such. And this one fall, uh, somebody from the BC Hunter Producers Association called me up. He said, Ian, we're in a tight spot. We have a convention uh, in about a month and a half and one of our main speakers he fell ill and he can't make it he's backed out and we're we're looking for somebody to fill this spot we need a keynote speaker and we need you to come over here and speak to this crowd and i said like hell i'm going to do that there's no way i'm going to stand up in front of 300 people and talk about bees because i'm a very shy and reserved person so i, I don't that ability to be able to express myself in front of crowds let alone like a table full of people so I said no I'm not going to do that that's silly so he kept at me kept at me because he wanted me to speak about a few aspects that I yap about on on uh, B-Source and on Facebook and so finally he wore me down and I said yes I do this thing and when I hung up the phone I went into a panic I was like what did I just get myself into like I've never spoken in front of a crowd before how am I going to be able to do this so the first thing I come to the, my mind was I got to see what I sound like first off. So I took my cell phone, held it up, and I took a video of myself talking. And then I spoke about bees. That's the only thing I really know really well is bees. So I talked, I made a little bee video, played it back. I was absolutely horrified by the way I sounded and the way I presented <laughs> myself. So I, I deleted that video. But I was like, ah, oh, you know, I can't back out of this. I already agreed. I'm not one to you know, disappoint people. So I, I picked that camera up again and I made another video and another one. And I just practiced taking out some of those ticks of my speaking. And I took around like, and just the way, just the way we talk sometimes, just their demeanor. I, I, not that I changed that, but I just tried to get myself used to that. So then I was able to practice speaking as what I was doing. So the next thing I did was, well, I got to make sure that these guys over in BC know me, get a presence of what I am standing in front of them before they see me so they don't have that first impression like oh that's Ian Stepler you know kind of deal so I put my video on YouTube I made a little video channel there put it on YouTube and I shared it on Facebook just to show all those guys in BC yeah this is Ian Stepler <laughs> and after that I made video and made video and made video practice I went to BC Honey Producer Association and I stood up and spoke through presentations and it was absolutely brilliant I, I had a lot of fun brought my wife with me we got away from the farm for a little bit, come back, and I just kept making these videos. And the thing was, I've all my life, I've always kept a journal. And then that journal kind of morphed into an online blog, which I kept on my website. And I used this journal and this blog kind of a source of reflection for myself. As I was saying before, as I was building my business, I'm always looking for perspective and I could never find it. So what I do is I provide that perspective for myself and in these blogs, I speak to myself as if, you know, I'm telling myself my thoughts of that day. I'm telling myself what's happening. So then later on, like this time of year in winter, I go back to my blog, my written journal or whatever, and I kind of reflect on what happens. And I kind of like help put pieces together for me so that I can then put together a better program the following year as I beekeep. And I find it very interesting because as I'm making these videos now, I'm doing the same thing. I'm picking that camera up. I'm making that daily blog. 
uh, my thoughts exactly what I'm thinking of that day of all the conditions around and how the bees are behaving. And I'm talking to myself as if I'm talking to myself 15 years ago. So then I go back through the winter like I'm doing right now, I'll compile the videos together and just see what happened through the year, how the bees reacted, the weather has influenced me, and just putting it all together. And maybe that very act of providing that perspective for myself to be able to put the pieces together and, and how these bees are behaving in certain ways and how I'm managing them and what I did wrong there and what I did right here and what we need to do moving forward and providing that out there for others to be able to grab hold of. Maybe it's just that piece of perspective everybody's interested in and just, you know, not that they want to do what I'm doing or can do what I'm doing, but just seeing what I'm doing to be able to use those bees to do what I want them to do, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Ian, that was absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, there was so much in there that you were saying. I was like, wow. I mean, it's just from beginning to end, this idea that you videoed yourself just because you were nervous about speaking in front of a group, you posted it online and then you do these video blogs and you go back and look at them to give you perspective on what you did for the year and change your practices. I mean, that's, that's incredible. So that's, that's yeah. really neat. The gosh, that how it led to what you're doing now, just for everyone to keep up with us, we're going to make sure and link um, Ian's YouTube channel in the show notes for this podcast. So you guys can go check out some of the videos he produced, but man, man, Ian, that's cool. That it seems like yeah, you really real, think a lot about it before you do these things. It's an interesting thing how this project's kind of evolved because it is all my entire YouTube project is based around uh, public speaking because I have a tremendous fear of speaking in front of people and it's just helped me take that one step forward and trying to achieve a little bit more out of my life and just reach out because I have this huge amount of built up energy that I have that I want to put towards the beekeeping industry. And this whole YouTube project, not only has it helped me with my feedback loop that I require year after year as I manage my business, but it's just, it's also allowed me to achieve something different to achieve this ability to reach out to people and communicate and then pour some of my energy directly into the industry. If it wasn't for the YouTube project, it wasn't for providing me the ability to practice speaking and get comfortable. I've never been able to join uh, the Manitoba Beekeepers Association to sit as a director, to be able to pour my direct energy <clears throat> directly into the industry. And so many things that we're doing in the, in the association right now is extremely fascinating and fun. And it's just provided an ex it's just a totally different layer to my, my life right now. And I've been speaking. This project has taken me right across the country, right through the United States. They've been inviting me out to these conventions to speak, just to provide perspective like I'm talking to you here. And it's provided my wife and I, you know, a little bit of an escape through winter <laughs> to get out and around and off the farm because the farm is so very controlling sometimes. So this has allowed me a place to be able to extract myself and get away from the farm sometimes and enjoy life a little bit. And now that COVID's hit, this whole medium is really focused online and we're talking more on Zoom conferences and such. And I'm speaking all over the world now. People would never have been able to invite me out because of the cost. Now they can, you know, drop a couple bucks in my lap and ask me to speak on Zoom at their conventions. The reach is so tremendous. It's a lot of fun. And I'm meeting a lot of interesting beekeepers. And, and I mean, like here, here I am speaking to you on a podcast, uh, Dr. Jamie Ellis. I mean, the, the fellow I watched 
speak at the convention a number of years ago as, as a building beekeeper. I mean, this is just a this is very exciting for me. <laughs> I have to say. Uh, well, thanks, Ian. You're making me blush on podcast. I feel Amy, like Amy, I'm, you need to ask your question now. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching like a, you know a fan club like talk to another fan club. Like I feel like I feel like you know Jamie is Ian's new fan and Ian is Jamie's fan, and I'll just oh, step back yeah. and let you all you know finish your conversation from here. It's fine. <laughs> well, you better ask you, another question. <laughs> you asked about who I uh, like. Everybody have, has mentors, and everybody has people who you sure. aspire and look up to. And there's a few that I reach. I don't reach out to, but I pay a lot of attention to. And Jamie, you're one of them. I always very fascinated about the work you're doing down in Florida. Well, thanks, there. Another, another, <laughs> another one is uh, Randy Oliver out in California. He's providing a huge perspective and just, you know, you guys are giving some scientific basis behind the work we're doing as beekeepers, which is extremely important. And that is, uh, that's so valuable to everybody who, you know, is trying to keep bees and maybe that's your place. That's, you know, you're in Randy's place, but maybe a place for me is, you know, to bring that conversation of beekeeping to beekeepers because that's needed too. And you know, just how do we take all the scientific information and study in this academia of all this interesting knowledge and how do you transfer that down to what we do as beekeepers here, you know, on the ground, in the hives, you know, kicking the hives every day. How, how do we transfer that down there to make our job easier and that, the way we do that is with conversation. And the way we do that is with sharing ideas. So you, I mean, you come up here to Manitoba to speak at our convention a number of years ago, and that is absolutely valuable to everybody in this province because you brought that knowledge. And then the next step is the beekeepers ourselves to be able to take that and figure it out and send it down into what we do as practice. So that's just my philosophy on all things around that. So Ian, you're talking about uh, your audience and the industry and the people who watch your YouTube videos. So I have a couple of questions as far as just, I guess, the feedback from your videos and your audience. Do you know, generally speaking, whether you have primarily hobbyist backyard beekeepers or whether you have more commercial beekeepers that are following your videos? And what about the feedback that you have? I, I assume that it's generally all positive because you have so many followers. Yeah, I have quite the audience. Uh, my uh, subscription base is 55,000. And I'm not even sure what that means. But I have roughly for every video I post typically, you know, this is a blog type journal type uh, exercise. So I'm uploading my thoughts almost every day. And I'll get five, 10, 15,000 every morning come to watch one of my videos. And then as the video sits there, it just it lingers and people just watch it. So I'll get like hundreds of thousands of views on videos I post. So I have a reach. I have quite a reach. I'd say my demographic, there's definitely a lot of hobby beekeepers watching. I do have commercial beekeepers watching, but I would say my main audience that comes every morning to listen to what I have to say would be the, the smaller type sideline beekeeper aspiring to be the commercial beekeeper who is looking for those answers, kind of like I was looking for when I was the, you know, the, the beekeeper aspiring to be that commercial beekeeper. So that my audience basically are the beekeepers are starved for that perspective and looking for answers and just kind of looking to see how they could understand their craft a little better and, and incorporate practices in to help the manager operations. And I get, as I was talking to you earlier, Amy, beekeeping is extremely political. 
And you wouldn't think that. You, you, you tell people that, how political beekeepers are, and they just kind of scoffed at you. But it is, it is can, it can be serious at some times. I'm involved with agriculture. So, you know, I run that 120-foot boom sprayer across our fields, putting chemicals down. So I have that perspective of as a grain farmer, which kind of balances out my whole opinion and philosophy on how, you know, this whole process moves forward. And because of that, it doesn't read kindly to uh, a certain demographic of beekeepers. So it, it gets extremely political, especially when you're talking seed treatments and stuff like that, and just the whole conversation around that. And I get hate mail, like absolute. I have so do we. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't look at that as a negative thing. It doesn't drag me down because I, I look at it as a bigger picture. I, I, there's an offset of that as, as a lot of supporters and people that are positive with their efforts. But I, everything has balance and you reach out to everybody like that. You're going to have a lot of negative feedback. And my whole thinking is I take those haters, all those negative comments as a compliment because I've, if I'm not reaching into that side a little bit and I'm not getting that pushback, it means I'm not pushing hard enough to push my perspective forward just to add to the conversation. And a lot of those people, not that there's a lot of people I, I just ignore, but there's a lot of people who are dead against my way of thinking and my perspective on how things are evolving forward. They'll email me. They say, Ian, I don't agree with a single thing you say. But you say, I do appreciate listening to your perspective because that just helps me understand what's happening and what's going on. And I'm not trying to change their minds, you know, and they're not trying to change mine. It's just the conversation. And I love the conversation between people who disagree. You you listen to two people that agree on something and it's very boring because they just compliment each other. But if you listen to two people that have difference in their ways of thinking, then you you pull out those little aspects in the conversation that it's gold, it's absolute gold. And just if you can involve that conversation in front of an audience like social media or something like that, you reach so many people with this. As long as the conversation is civil, you just reach that conversation. It just, it reaches so many people and it just makes everybody better for it, I think. Not that we're trying to change ideas. It's just providing, you know, the conversation so everybody can make up their own bloody mind, right? So that's just kind of the way I look at it with YouTube and my exposure. Yeah, you know, I think that's incredibly inspirational. You know, we are also out there, right? We do podcasts, we do social media, where I'm going around the world teaching. Amy is too, and Cameron, who's also at the lab, and Umberto and others. And and I find the more out there you are, the more vulnerable you are to criticism. And, you know, a lot of it, just people who are kind of driving by, throwing in a grenade and driving off. But there are some people who truly can benefit. And, and one of the things that I've had, there's a faculty member here at the University of Florida who works with genetically modified organisms. And I'm not sure yeah. what could be a more controversial topic in the eyes of the public than that. But he said that he always tries to answer his critics on these social media, not because he expects to change the critic's mind, but because he expects to change the mind of those people who are watching the debate. And so he felt that it's very necessary to respond to people who are trolls or what have you, because he said, you know, again, you are not going to change the mind of that person who's vehemently against you or science or whatever it is that you said or did. But there are people watching who can benefit and learn. And there's more people who are going to change from that discussion than there are who's going to follow that person who just lobbed a grenade and drove off. And I think that that was sound advice. And it's neat to hear you say the same thing. I learned one thing along this whole path, and that is to stay away from like actual politics. 
you know, that right and left type politic deal. A lot of the issues that we talk within the beekeeping uh, community are, you know, weighted right or they're weighted left. But as long as I find as long as I keep the conversation between those two camps within the political or within the beekeeping context and keep that whole layer of external politics out of it, then it makes the conversation between us a lot more civil. I made the mistake a little while ago, like up in, in Canada here, we have our liberals and our conservatives and just brings a negative tone back into the beekeeping conversation that I thought wasn't useful. So I said, why am I doing that? If I'm trying to you know, reach out to beekeepers and you know, contribute to the conversation, why am I muddying the water when I should just focus on bees and just let that conversation take its way? You know what I mean? Absolutely agreed. So there's so much sound advice that you're giving. I, I wish I had heard this personally a long time ago, because like I said, it's easy to get detracted when, when people are lobbing grenades, but it's really neat perspective that you're giving. Let me wind down the interview. There's so much I want to talk to you about. We're going to have to have you back on because this interface between <laughs> cattle and bees yeah. is very important. I mean, we could talk about planning for bees, planning for cattle. That's a really big deal here in Florida. A lot of these grazing lands, the farmers are thinking, oh, yeah. well, maybe we can put stuff that could benefit cattle and pollinators. We need to have you back and get your perspective on that. But as we just kind of wind down this particular one, where you've been focusing on your social media, how you got into bees, et cetera, what advice do you have for farmers or ranchers, you know, like yourself, your family, looking to start beekeeping or having bees on their property? Oh, that's a good question. So I'll just kind of reflect back to when I started my beekeeping journey and just some of the thoughts that now I see as if I was going to give somebody advice and who maybe wants to start up a little beekeeping operation. And probably the first thing you got to be aware of is the amount of natural resources out there for those bees to be able to uh, forage on. Uh, it's, just, it's just like uh, cattle pasture. If the cattle pasture can hold 80 cow-calf uh, cow pairs, and you put 120 in there, those cows are going to be starving sometime throughout that season. So you've got to make sure that we're managing our resources accordingly to be able to sustain these hives. Because if you, if there isn't enough out there, then you got to really make sure either you focus on nutrition or the management of the colony around that, or you find another place. Because there's a lot of beekeepers within the countryside, and beekeeping is very territorial. And that's something that new beekeepers don't appreciate, is an existing bee farm is manage this property all their lives even though they don't own the property it's you know their gentleman's agreement is that it's their territory and if anybody you know dips their toe in that territory they're starting to throw knives and we have to respect that in a lot of ways so the first thing and probably the biggest mistake i made was i started up my little beekeeping business and we have a lot of land here like we're 3500 acre grain farm and uh, how much other i forget how much ranch land we have so we probably have five or six thousand acres of land so i started putting my bees out of my land and i have absolutely every right to do that because it's my property but i didn't consider the other beekeepers in the area who already was holding that territory one beekeeper for over 100 years and I kind of stepped on their toes. All I had to do was go out and talk to that beekeeper and say, hey, you know, I'm here. Make a little bit of space for me if you don't mind. You know, I'm aspiring to be a beekeeper. This is my property. And I bet you nine times out of ten, they appreciate that the landowner is the ruler and you have to abide by that. But And then they'd probably back off. But I, I stepped on their toes and I pushed them out without communication. And those guys still don't talk to me to this day. <laughs> it's just very dangerous. So not dangerous, but very, uh, it's not the way, it's not proper etiquette. So that would be the first thing. Just kind of see what's going on. 
take a look at the environment you're trying to keep your bees in, see who's out there already tapping into the uh, natural resource, and then just kind of integrate your way into that, into the beekeeping business. So that's my biggest tip of advice for anybody wanting to get into bees on their own property. Ian, that's again, sage advice, like your YouTube channel, all the advice you're giving us. I like this idea of, of communication. You know, it boils down to communication. Your YouTube channel is the way you communicate. You're talking even when you, when you, advice you have for folks getting into the business, they need to communicate with other beekeepers, et cetera. I think that's Yeah. Great. And even they take it a step further and you want to communicate with your neighbors too, uh, that you're going to be foraging your bees over because they have to know that you're there and they have to know that what they do on their property directly affects what happens in our hives. So that line of communication is very important. You reach out to those landowners and they don't want to hurt your bees. They want to see you thrive and, you know, we're part of the community and they want to see everybody uh, prosper the same way. As bees, we're providing them the benefit of pollination. But if they don't know we're here, then, you know, they can't help adjust their management practices to be able to avoid some conflict further down the line. And that goes for beekeepers too. We have to understand as we're tapping that resource across the countryside on other people's property as they're making their livelihood, that beekeepers, we need to realize that they have to maintain their management practices and such. So we have to be able to provide that line of communication to help them make decisions that won't negatively affect us. And a lot of that is spraying. And a lot of that, you know, as we incorporate certain management strategies on our farm to be able to manage in a way that doesn't hurt our bees, we'd like our neighbors to do the same thing. And all they're looking for is guidance. If they can just switch a little bit of their management practice around, maybe it's not as convenient, but just a little bit of extra effort protects not only the bees, but, you know, the natural environment too. Little things like spraying for bugs. If they know that the certain spray holds a heavy residue or it's going to directly affect the health of my bees or, or the natural world by spraying at a certain time, you just tell them, please, if you could just spray in the evening. Spraying in the evening allows them to target their bugs a little more effectively. My bees are away and they, they have that act of controlling your insects all night when my bees are away. By the time morning comes, insecticide, if it's not heavy residue, will be burnt off and my bees won't be affected as badly. And they can also make other choices, better choices like uh, technologies are available now. There's one spray called Corrigin that it allows producers to spray for caterpillars or worms or grasshoppers that don't affect the bees as much. It costs five bucks an acre more or so, but it's just that extra little step, little effort. And those landowners know that by just helping it a little bit, it just allows us to thrive as beekeepers as we struggle to manage our businesses and it directly benefits what they're doing in their operations too. That line of communication, I'm a big believer in that. And as long as we keep talking to each other, I think we're able to solve more of our problems in a more proactive way. Ian, that was well said. I think that's a great affirmation on all we've talked about. Communication is key. Ian, thank you so much for joining on this podcast. I think our listeners are really going to benefit from all the things that you were able to share with us. Yeah, well, Jamie and Amy, I certainly appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and uh, showing your interest towards me. I'm quite flattered about that, and and I'm more than happy to uh, join you with the conversation. Well, everybody, that was Ian Stepler of Stepler Farms. He's a commercial beekeeper in Canada. He's got a great blog, a great YouTube channel. It's called a Canadian Beekeeper's Blog. We'll make sure and link that in our show notes. And thank you for listening to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Have questions? 
questions or comments, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. All right, Jamie, I'm really hoping that at this time, we have a really cool five-minute management. Five-minute management. Have you listened to our five-minute management? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am the five-minute manager, right? So I don't, I don't listen to it. But, it. but I'm also hoping we have an interesting one. <laughs> we do. It's really awesome. Okay. Well, All good. right. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead. I hope that's the case. We'll see. <laughs> All right. I have pressed start. And my question, so our topic for our five-minute management today is talking about rules and regulations. Wah, Where do wah, people- wah. How's yeah. that interesting? <laughs> interesting people want to know all that information where do they check in your area how do you know what the rules and regulations are yeah those are really good questions and they're important questions because the way that laws work is it doesn't matter if you're ignorant of the laws if you break them you're still responsible for that and so i know we have listeners around the world so it's going to vary slightly it's this will be a bit of a u.s centric answer but i think there will be parallels and similar groups in other countries around the world so here's where you start number one In many states in the U.S., there are state apiary inspection programs. Those are usually housed in the Department of Ag. So a quick Google search, the name of your state apiary inspection rules will get you to that. For example, if you live in Florida, Florida apiary inspection rules. If you live in the U.K., U.K. apiary inspection rules. And that will usually get you where you need to go to see what the rules and regulations are related to keeping bees in your state, your region, or even for that matter, in your country. And that's very important. Some states, such as Florida, have very robust apiary inspection rules. In the state of Florida, you have to register your colonies if you keep bees. And that's true in some other countries around the world. So you start by Google searching that. You might also check with other beekeepers because beekeepers in your area, especially commercial beekeepers, are going to be uh, clued into the local rules and regulations because they're going to have to be following them if they're expecting to sell their honey or pollination services. So check with your state or local authority. The next group that I would look at is your very, very local authority. And what do I mean by that? Your city, your county, because there might be zoning and Sydney city ordinances relating Sydney to the ordinances. Sydney, I know. In case you've, <laughs> and if you're in Australia, that was for you. <laughs> zoning and city ordinances for keeping of livestock in your area. In the state of Florida, the state supersedes those local ordinances, but in other places, those city or local ordinances might be in place and say that you can or can't keep bees in your backyard, or you can or can't keep bees in your subdivision, which I think leads me to a very important next point. If you live in an area and are governed by a homeowners association in your area, you need to check with your homeowners association. It is very possible that your local homeowners association will not permit you to keep bees. And it's funny, even though the state or the city you would think supersede the homeowners association, in many instances, they don't. Because what happens is when you sign into a homeowners association, you are submitting to their authority voluntarily. So you need to check with your HOA. You also need to know that there are often rules and regulations related to honey houses 
bottling and selling honey. Since honey is a food commodity, it often has to be bottled in an area that is regulated. So it's very important that if you are selling honey, that you look for your local city or state honey house bottling and, and, and selling ordinances. And again, if you're struggling to figure out where to find these, just find a commercial beekeeper in your area because he or she's probably having to live by these rules as well. And they'll be able to point you in the right direction. And the final bit of advice that I can give you, if you remove colonies as part of your beekeeping business, in other words, uh, someone calls you as a beekeeper and says, I have bees nesting in the wall of my house or in a tree trunk, et cetera, you very well may be governed by rules. And the reason for that is because in many areas, removing colonies is considered pest control. And in many areas, pest control, uh, those individuals practicing pest control have to do so with a license and with insurance, et cetera. So it's very important that you look into local pest control ordinances. If you live in the U.S., a lot of this information you might be able to find from your local land-grant university. In the state of Florida, for example, that's us here at UF. We might know where those rules and regulations can be found. You can also check with your local county extension office uh, and talk to your county agent. If you live outside of the U.S., you would try to find your local equivalent of a bee extension specialist. But there's, there's really a great resource in commercial beekeepers for you because they're going to know these rules and regulations because they have to live by them in order to, to conduct their business legally. Oh, my gosh. We're at 15 seconds. I almost said 16 seconds. Perfect. Yeah, I'm perfect. Seconds left. Well, if I've got that much time, I want to just say we're going to link a document I wrote in the show notes that will give you some pointers on how to figure out what these rules and regulations are and how to find them. Great. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Jamie, it's that question and answer time. I've got three questions. They're mostly from Twitter, which I feel like I am so sorry to these people who ask this and I haven't checked the Twitter in a long time. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny, Amy, because I only look at the Instagram. I've got the Instagram, the Instagram. That the sounded Instagram. so old, man. <laughs> I only look at the Instagram. No, I only look at the Instagram account because that's the app I have on my phone. I don't even look at the Facebook or Twitter. So um, if you're looking principally at Facebook and I'm looking at principally at Instagram, <laughs> then the poor Twitter folks are the ones who are not getting their questions well, answered. Well, we're finally getting to the Twitter folks. So All right. the first question is why, <laughs> why is swarm control so important? And, you know, we always talk about swarm control, but surely they should be allowed to swarm because it's natural, right? That's what they want to do the most of or is that, that's what you typically yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Amy, these are interesting questions. It, and the benefit of being me and you is that we we see the whole question, right? This individual is really wanting to know, well, besides honey production and preventing them from being a pest to others, why would I want to stop swarming? It's natural. And those are both good comments. So, so first of all, swarm control is important because swarm season happens during the same time you're usually, this is a generalization, right? This happens when you're wanting your bees to make honey. So if the colony's splitting, you're losing a lot of the, the, the workforce to make honey. So it's important for honey production. Secondly, when you're uh, sending out a lot of swarms into the environment, especially if you live in urban or suburban areas, those bees are likely going to nest somewhere that ends up being a nuisance for other folks, right? They're going to nest in the wall of someone's house, 
in their chimney, they're going to nest in their tree, they're going to nest in their water meter box, what have you. So they're going to be a nuisance to other people. And the questioner said, well, besides those two things, why would I want to control swarming, right? Since since swarming's natural. Well, mm-hmm. swarming is natural, but I will tell you that in agriculture, we constantly are controlling reproduction in our livestock. We do that for cows and for chickens, et cetera. So it's not, I mean, you could ask the same question of, of any livestock production system. Well, why are we sure. stopping our chickens from producing or, or reproducing or our sheep or cows or what have you? The, uh, to me, the best non-honey production and best non-being a pest to other reason that I can offer you for not, for, sorry, for controlling swarming is that when we allow our bees to swarm, we have a lot of unmanaged colonies being produced in our area. And those colonies become reservoirs for diseases and pests because there's not a beekeeper linked to those colonies controlling those diseases and pests. So allowing your colonies to swarm keeps the disease and pest population high in your area. And the moment you control it in your colonies, those swarm colonies that you allow to be in the environment, they're out there providing those diseases and pests to re-inoculate their colonies. So if you don't think about it from, as, from a honey production standpoint, if you don't think about it from you know your colony swarming into other people's houses and being a problem for them, then you can think about how it can be a problem for the colonies that you're trying to manage because those unmanaged colonies in the environment are just spinning off problems for your bees. They're competing with your bees for resources. They're spouting off diseases and pests. So I, I think that reason alone would be another good reason to control swarming in honeybee colonies. I do get though, that there's this growing contingency of beekeepers out there calling themselves right natural beekeepers and natural beekeeping. And then that philosophy, they allow their colonies to swarm. And I'm not knocking that philosophy at all. I'm just saying that in those cases, you're going to produce less honey. Your bees are going to be a nuisance for other folks. And those swarms are potentially going to be a disease and pest reservoir, not to mention compete with the bees that you're managing. So I think there's a lot of reasons to try to control swarming in bee colonies. Yeah, definitely. And as beekeepers and bee people, sometimes I think we forget that there are people out there that don't like bees. They just don't. Absolutely. Yep. You know, so anyway, okay. So for the second question, the question is how do I prevent mosquito breeding in my water sources? And so I asked this, and then I also asked you, Jamie, what does that have to do with bees? Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever been asked this question ever. So it's really neat to see it. And again, being the beneficiary of being able to see this behind the scenes question, they're also asking another one of those questions, kind of like the swarm question. Well, why is swarming important beyond these two reasons? Well, how do I stop mosquitoes from breeding in my water beyond changing the water every couple of days? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here. First of all, bees need water. They need water, especially uh, during the hot times of the year for thermoregulation purposes. The bees will go to whatever the local water source is, and they're going to collect that water, and they're going to bring it back to their hive, and they're going to sprinkle it around the nest. They're going to stand at the nest entrance, fan their wings. That evaporates off the water, and through that evapotranspiration, you cool the nest. So this is important. And even, for example, where I live, there's no local swimming pools, streams, bird baths, ponds, lakes, or anything. So if bees are going to have water where I live during the summer, which they need where I live, I'm going to have to provide it to them. So I've, I've done that before in lots of different ways. I provided water sources and, and feeding troughs as an example, but that 
then produces a potential breeding reservoir for mosquitoes, mm -hmm. right? If we're going to be providing standing water for our bees, we are also producing an area where mosquitoes can breed, lay eggs, and sure. reproduce. And one of the chief recommendations for reducing the mosquito loads in one's yard is to remove all uh, stagnant water, uh, flower pots, uh, anything that might be holding water, that's place where mosquitoes can breed. So well, mosquitoes How, can actually breed in like a two liter bottle. Exactly. Cap. They need very little water. We see the mosquito larvae in our, our dogs watering pails, for example. So they don't need much water and they don't need much water long before they're going to be laying eggs and having mosquito larvae come out. And so you, you, you need to get rid of standing water. So the individual is asking the question, how can I provide a water source and not have to change it regularly? Well, number one, that's not going to be easy to do. If you're going to provide that kind of trough-like water source where you fill a trough with water and you put some sort of flotation on top of it, then you're going to get mosquitoes in it and you're going to have to clean that thing out one or two times weekly to stay ahead of the mosquito reproduction cycle. So the questioner then wants to know, how can I do that without having to go out there and clean that tub out two times a week? Well, one way is to have a really large tub, you know, like a horse watering trough as an example, and then you can actually put fish in those troughs. Uh, I know a lot of farmers in our area who do that. They provide water troughs for their cattle and they're really big water troughs. And what they do is they just go buy goldfish and throw the goldfish in the troughs and the goldfish eat the mosquito larvae. So there's a, that's one way to do it. So you're going to have to have a, a trough of critical size that can support the fish, po fish population. But maybe a better way to do it is rather than, you know, get a bigger trough and, and throwing fish in it, it's just changed the way that you provide water to bees. One of the ways that I've done it is I've used those entrance feeders, those little plastic or metal things mm -hmm. that slide in the entrance of colonies that you put a jar of sugar water in. Well, instead of putting jars of sugar water in it, I put jars of water. And what I've done is I have folks who own horses who live on either side of me. And for a while, when I first started keeping bees in the area where I live, my bees would go to their, their water troughs and drink water. And I would see that it would terrify me, right? Their horses were going there drinking water where my bees were. So I started putting water in these entrance feeders of my colonies and it greatly reduced bee activity at my neighbor's water troughs. So that is a great way to provide water to bees uh, in a way that mosquitoes cannot use it. So you can either increase the size of your water trough and throw some fish in there that are known to eat mosquito larvae, or you can provide water a completely different way. The, the alternative is you're just going to have to go dump out and refill those water sources a couple of times a week if you want to stay ahead sure. of the um, mosquitoes. The, the trough and the fish seem a little excessive. But it's me. fun though. It's fun though, Amy. It's fun. It's really interesting because <laughs> these, these friends of mine from our church, they actually go and will net out those goldfish and they'll give them to children at a, at a lot of like youth fairs. They that always have so this concept. Yeah, it's, it's just a neat, <laughs> a neat way. I never knew that people do this, but it is very common in the, in the cattle industry here in the state of Florida. So I think it's a really neat huh. way to do it. That's pretty cool. Okay. So for our last question, what is the best method of storing supers and deep frames season to season? You know, I know that I always have extra supers and extra frames laying around. And so how do we store that? Okay, so I'm going to go from the best way and back my way down to the, the easiest and most the practical way. way. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you think about it, but the best way is to freeze the cones. 
Sure. Right. That so nobody just, has a freezer. That that's big. the key yeah. is that it's the best ways to freeze the comb, leave them frozen in that freezer until it's time to use them again in the next honey flow. So I'm assuming if you've got more than one or two colonies, then you likely don't have enough freezer space to freeze those supers when not in use. And so what a lot of beekeepers do, and this is what I did when I had more colonies when I was growing up in Georgia and, and had more time to take care of bees. When the combs were not in use, I would store them in my grandfather's dairy barn using uh, moth crystals. The big risk to the comb are wax moths. And so wax moths like to move into stored mm -hmm. combs and completely demolish them. And so I would follow the instructions on the wax moth crystals and at the time, you would stack a few supers, put down a sheet of newspaper, pour whatever the amount of labeled use of wax moth crystals were on the newspaper, stack a few more combs, put another sheet of newspaper, pour some more crystals, stack a few more combs, et cetera. And I would check the crystal level throughout the winter season or throughout the storage season to make sure that there were enough wax moth crystals. And then I would follow the label about airing out the supers enough time before putting them back on the bees. And so that's another good way. A third good way is if you have an open air shed, and this would be a shed that's like a pole barn, right? It's, it, it's got a roof over the top, but at least two or three sides are open. You can crisscross stack your supers. So you'll put a super down, and then the, the super that goes on top of that will go at a 90 degree angle to it. Well, the super that goes on top of that will go to a 90 degree angle on top of that. You just crisscross them on the way up because wax moths do not like air and light. So if you store your supers kind of in this crisscross pattern, you're getting a lot of air and light into it. And it's a good way to deter wax moths from laying eggs in there. I will caution you though, if it's a closed shed and you do this, wax moths are going to destroy the combs. And my other caveat is this doesn't work well if the comb is dark. So if brood has been raised in that comb or been reared in that comb, stacking it this way in an, in an open air shed won't work because wax moths prefer dark comb and you have to go to greater lengths to stop wax moths from damaging Weird. that dark comb, like freezing or adding the wax moth crystals. And the final way, the final recommendation I'll give for storing combs is you can store them on the hives themselves. That's actually what I've done for the last uh, few years uh, for the bees on my property. I didn't have freezer space. I, the, the comb was dark and it had brood reared in it. I knew the wax moths were going to take it out if I put it in the shed. So what I would do is I would go back to my colonies and just store two or three um, empty supers just on top of the colonies, combs and all. So the, the combs are there, the bees can protect them. And as long as the colonies are strong and healthy, then they're able to police that comb and make sure the wax moths stay out of it. So those, those four ways, freezing, using wax moth crystals, storing it kind of in that crisscross pattern in the open air shed, or storing it actually on the hives themselves are, are all ways that I've used in the past. That's interesting. And when you're putting the super on top of an established colony, that doesn't provide them too much space? So it doesn't. One of the concerns that I always had when I was doing this is that if the colony retracts, right? If let's think about it this way, let's just say for the sake of argument that your standard hive size is one deep and one medium, and that's what mm -hmm. the bees are filling. And now you've thrown two medium supers on top of that for the bees to police. If that colony starts to weaken, and they're no longer patrolling those uppermost supers, wax moths can certainly move into those sure. things and damage. So you really want to make sure, you want to check it every few weeks and make sure that there's no wax moth moving into it. In my opinion, Amy, there's, it's, there's really no such thing as too much space for bees during the off season, as long as they're adequately able to protect that comb. If you're starting to see the least little bit of wax moth webbing 
in those supers, then you've got to do something else quickly to make sure that the wax moths don't take them out. Alrighty. Thank you very much. And so those questions actually came from Gail's Honeybees, Andy and Bob Porter. So I know that they've all been active listeners from the very thank beginning. You guys. So yeah, thank you so much. And everyone else who's been listening, uh, hopefully we'll get to your questions if we have not already. Um, but go ahead and send us an email or, you know, send us a comment or message on any of our social media pages. And I promise we will start checking every single one of, of our social media pages. Thanks again. Hey everyone, thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.